Hello, baby. Want a kiss? Welcome to the Experimental Film Podcast with your host, Ken Hess. Teaching a parakeet to talk is fun, but the old method took too much time and patience. This record is specially designed to teach any healthy, normal parakeet to talk by using a scientific new method that is acknowledged to be far superior because a carefully trained voice, specially chosen for excellence in clarity and diction, repeats over and 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 over the same words, the same phrase, in a manner that most parakeets are most likely to imitate. Check experimentalfilm.info for information, interviews, and episodes. For the next few seconds, this record will be silent. This podcast is dedicated exclusively to experimental film and its makers. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 13 of the Experimental Film Podcast. Today's guest is Zach Blackwell. Zach is a director, writer, and producer. He is known for his self-reliance and core beliefs that filmmaking is similar to an artist painting or a musician playing an instrument, provided that they treat filmmaking as an art as well as a business, keeping organized, having clear communication and management skills, and to read excessively. He is the current owner of Blackwell Film Company, an independent film production company in Dallas, Texas, that dedicates their films to the combination of art house, horror, and tragedy. Zach, welcome to the Experimental Film Podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate no it. No problem. Man, I'm excited to have you on. I'm, I'm excited to hear about filmmaking in Dallas because, um, as we talked about a little before the podcast, I used to live there and am from pretty close to there in Texas. In Texas hours and miles, I'm pretty close, about 100 miles. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so that's, that's not that's, bad. All right. So yeah, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, yeah, Dallas, uh, Texas down here. It's, it's hopping, man. Like, uh, there's a bunch of artists down here that are, you know, going out and, uh, trying different things and, uh, definitely a lot of experimentation, uh, down in Austin and Dallas, Dallas is getting just bigger and bigger as far as the independent scene goes. And, uh, a lot of, uh, minds coming together and thinking about how to expand our filmic vocabulary. Oh, that's and it's very just, cool. And it's awesome. Yeah, because I'm, I'm excited to hear that because, you know, when I was in Texas, um, it was mostly Austin where you had all the avant-garde kind of stuff. You know, Dallas was more um, kind of mainstream, you know, in its art and its filmmaking. I'm glad to know that they're branching out and becoming more experimental because that really experimental film, as I have told many people on the podcast and um, on Facebook groups and stuff, experimental film is experimental today and mainstream tomorrow because that's yeah. where filmmakers really look to find out what's possible to give them permission to do something. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, and I agree with that completely. The, the thing that, uh, I, I think from a student's perspective, because I went to uh, Tarrant County College, a uh, community college out here, and um, we had a film program, but it was very, very technical. It didn't have a lot of the flow or the poetic. Uh, it was very emotionless. Oh, I see. If, if you get my drift, yeah. It, it's very... Uh, kind of branched out into kind of a science and it feel, felt very uh, constricting. Um, so I get what you're saying, 100%. Yeah. Uh, and that's, Dallas, very uh, mainstream. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the funny thing is, is the Dallas-Fort Worth area, that's where a lot of media actually started. A lot of people from that area near my hometown and that whole swatch through the Dallas-Fort Worth area, a lot of those people were radio and TV pioneers. Um, mm -hmm. They were silent film pioneers around there. There's lots of, if you really start researching it, I was shocked that a lot of the yeah. early, early filmmakers, you know, around the turn of the century and up through the twenties were from that area. Yeah, definitely. And uh, what, what's, what's insane about that too, is just kind of like taking a look at filmic history. We, we started, this art form at the dawn of the uh, industrial age. 
So it kind of, while every early filmmaker was kind of experimenting and uh, trying to figure it out, it turned very quickly, I feel, into this very modernized format. A lot of manifestos within America itself weren't able to populate uh, it as they did in like France or uh, some of our uh, cousin countries. Um, oh, are you still there? You kind of faded out. You still there? Yeah. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, I can now. Sorry about that. Oh, I don't know oh what, that's all right. I don't know what the deal was. Maybe we're losing oh. our connection. But anyway, some of that I didn't get. Um, but anyway, yeah, I understand. And in fact, the, the funny thing is about those early filmmakers, like you were saying, they were experimenting because there was there were no rules. There were no, um, you know, all they had to go on was, was stage. You know, that's mm-hmm. where their expertise came from and, and acting and, and everything else is the stage. And, um, you know, zooming, panning, uh, you know, hand-holding a camera, all that stuff was experimental back then and became mainstream, just as I was saying earlier. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. So let's take a minute to have us have you tell us about yourself and your work. Sure. Um, uh, new, um, like I said before, uh, I went to uh, Tarrant County College. They had a film program. Though I didn't graduate for film, I went to a film theory class and kind of um, didn't didn't really enjoy how they were teaching it. And when I went into computer science and started to understand uh, different avenues of thought as far as engineering, um, I started base my filmic values or what I want for film. Um, based off of a a first principle thinking. So I looked up different different things like Dogma 95, which is uh, Lars von Trier's um, manifesto that he wrote back in 1995, uh, alongside another filmmaker, uh, where they tried to boil film down into its fundamental parts, like what is going to, what what is the bare essentials to create a film with. And from that, and following the Dogma 95 uh, films, I started to gain the confidence to start creating my own shorts. And I really thought about and really took a lot of time into thinking and reading about was how we have a vast variety, variety of tools at our disposal as filmmakers, but these tools and start stripping them away what what creative solutions can we come up within the moment to make our film a reality and so a lot of my shorts for example are handheld uh i do the cinematography myself i do the editing myself um but also begin to incorporate things from different fields of art and different fields of science especially in sound um we looked up a lot of experiments uh, that people did as far as um, what induces fear and horror uh, being a very, I think, choked genre, a very um, kind of over regurgitated sort of genre is now starting to peak into more of an art house tragedy sort of field uh, when filmmakers um, like Ari Aster and, you know, more mainstream filmmakers are starting to think in that direction. But I think that we can take it a step farther as experimental filmmakers by looking into the subliminal messages, uh, that are seen visually and also subliminal messages, subliminal messages that are sent audibly. And a lot of the things that we can do with that, for example, is if we take a scene and take these different things that we've added, for example, we'll say subtitles. Subtitles is something that a lot of people, I believe, don't really take into consideration as a part of the film itself. But if you we look back to the 60s, and you can find this on YouTube, uh, they have a recording of 
a national anthem uh, going off and the subtitles fading just barely. And when it's slowed down, you can make out words, messages being spoken to its audience. Because film at the time uh, was run on a very specific uh, frames per second, and now we can speed it up and slow it down uh, to our liking, you can start to see those messages pop up. So different things like that, thinking kind of outside of the box as far as um, the letterbox, for example, um, widening it and shrinking it to create a completely different look and variation. And even in colors, because we have a whole psychological color palette now. Um, if, uh, you know, McDonald's, for example, is a great example. We have red and yellow. What does that elicit? That elicits a lot of hunger. Uh, red is a very passionate color as far as color psychology goes. And so I prefer to not use a lot of reds in my work. And the reason why is because my goal is to distance the audience from any sort of passion and make it a very clinical sort of, elicit a very clinical sort of feeling with the colors and with the saturation. And it's not about pushing them deeper into a world, but to let them take a step back and see the film for what it is, a film, utilizing Brechtian techniques uh, to kind of make it more, give them more of a sadistic, voyeuristic stance. And through that, they can, when, they, when you see something awful on the screen, for example, because I make a lot of horror and tragedy, and you're distanced from it, and you're forced to watch it, you kind of get this feeling in your head like, what am I watching? Well, that feeling of uncomfort, of discomfort, is that catharticism that we can gain from horror and tragedy. Because catharticism is, I, in my belief, the reason we watch horror and tragedy. It's the reason why it's important in art. And so when we have such a life to where a lot of these monsters or these nightmares or these creatures can't harm us because they don't exist. We can make them exist through film to be able to dig our way out of whatever it is we're dealing with at the time. And so I think that horror is one of the most important um, aspects of filmic genre in general. That's just kind of my core beliefs and what I base a lot of my thoughts off of and when I'm creating a film. Yeah, that's interesting because um, I've never heard it explained like that, but you're right. You know, there's a lot of filmmakers who either start out and making horror films or um, it seems like there was a a filmmaker who once spoke about it. I can't remember who it was now, but he said, um, make a horror film. Apparently that's what launches a lot of people's careers as horror films. And I, I think you might be right. I think there might be a catharsis to it because we have so many fears about that, the kinds of things that happen in horror films that it mm. makes us, it makes us less afraid maybe of those things. Or I don't know. I, I haven't really analyzed it like you have, but I think that's really cool that you've put that much thought into those kinds of films because I've, I've absolutely never ever heard an analysis like that before. So that's, that's really pretty cool. Is, is that kind of your, your thing as horror films and tragedy films? Absolutely. Um, and I think that, for example, I feel that I've had a very, um, happy life. I don't, I'm not some kind of, you know, crazed, deranged dude in the, at the, you know, I I've I've had a very happy life, but still, even though there's a lot of happiness, I still believe that there must be some sort of ca- counterbalance. There has to be some sort of catharsis because when you live in such kind of a uh, in a way where you're in love with your wife, you you have a dog, you know, they're they're very simple things, but very happy things. You know, you're making it. Um, there's always going to be something sort of chasing you. There's something chasing each and every one of us. Uh, and it's it can be a crippling anxiety, which can be transformed into a metaphor within a film. Um, a Machine for Rats, for example, the feature film that we've just, uh, we've just shot and it's getting out of post-production is 
um, a film that is designed to control you to make you think something completely different about what you're watching and then transform it in the end. Uh, uh, and kind of something that I'm afraid of and have always been afraid of that I've been very open about is being controlled. I, I feel that the most horrifying thing in this world is for me to be locked in a cage where I can't create or where I can't express myself. And so through this catharsis um, and this creation of something where you find a character or you find something within the film that you can trust and that trust is taken away from you, that's what that film is about to me. So when we create horror and we create tragedy, uh, to elevate it into an art form besides um, the different plays on uh, like, like what we can do with story, how we can manipulate instead of having a circular story like uh, the hero of a thousand faces, we can have a pyramidal story uh, where everyone's distant. And when we come to a climax at the end, uh, it ends. That's, that's the end of the film. And people may find that incredibly tragic not to give it in one go, but that's the catharsis that you feel where you're creating metaphors in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Can alleviate a lot of the a lot of the pain that you feel as far as what's following you, what's chasing you. So it's not just a, a horror film for you. It's actually a kind of a psychological exploration or maybe even a psychological experiment to see how you can maybe i don't know i don't want to say manipulate the audience but i think i think any film manipulates the audience you know you you absolutely you create tears you create laughs you create anxiety in your audience so you know i i think that's a a, a cool explanation and a, a cool exploration of what you're doing actually so that's that's kind of neat i know you do a lot of horror and tragedy films would you say that all of your films have some sort of an experimental quality to them, or do you just do experimental films separate from your regular mainstream films? I would say that definitely all of my films have an experimental quality to them. And the reason for this is because we have cameras now uh, at our disposal constantly. We have cell phones, for example. We can go out and shoot a film whenever we want. We can... There's, there's just so much, so many tools at our disposal right now. I think when you're getting together a team of people, um, a crew, cast, whatever you, whoever wants to come and help you out, that you, in all the different aspects of film, you create some sort of experimental variation. So as I've said before, I didn't really enjoy film theory class that much and wanted to create sort of my own sort of theory on how a film would be how I would make a film, for example. And it was subjective enough to be able to reach out to several other filmmakers and give them kind of a baseline on what they can, what a different way of thinking about filmmaking in general. So when you have this team available, to lay out some foundations on what's going to be different about this shoot is kind of a rule number one. So for me, myself, uh, I believe that film, like art, art has seven different colors. In music, you have seven different notes, but in film, you have seven different ranges. So in mainstream film, a lot of the times what the audience likes to do or what the audience likes to pay, pay attention to most are the primary ranges, which is story, visuals, and audio. But a film is so much more. You know, you have philosophy, you have which is the way the entire film is structured. You have poetry, uh, which I attribute to dialogue. It's the rhythm in which the dialogue is spoken. You have um, sculpting, which is the editing process, uh, whittling the film down into what it will become. And you have dance, which is the cinematography and the blocking. Um, when you have all these ideas of what a camera should do in this instance or why a camera needs to be in this spot, like a pan or a pool, it, to have a camera in your hand and be able to 
exact your vision. It's kind of like if an artist is painting, they're utilizing a paintbrush, but their body type is going to be completely different than yours and mine, for example. For me, I have long, lanky arms. I'm a thin guy, very short. So uh, by getting a handheld camera, I can push out farther with my longer limbs, but I can duck really slow or really uh, small as well and create kind of a bigger picture with a wide angle lens. So because we are each different, our movements and our dance of cinematography becomes a signature. It's subliminal and sometimes it, it it's not caught right off the bat, but you can look at a film and say, oh, you know, I think Ken Hess made this film, or, you know, I think Zach Blackwell made this film because of the way that the camera moves and because of the way it's sculpted, because of the philosophy and the thought process and the structure of the film is then created and the message it then conveys because of how the characters are speaking to one another. Um, maybe they're speaking very clinically, very precise, very pristine, or maybe they're speaking very fast and witty and snappy. That's the poetry of dialogue. So you have these seven different ranges of film. And because you have these seven different ranges of film, those ranges being story, visual, audio, philosophy, sculpting, dance, and poetry, you can now expand on these different categories. So for example, we'll take story. Story is usually um, what is started with kind of a uh, written down format, because I believe that to create something, first you must speak it into existence. Uh, secondly, you must write it down. It's the logical side. So you have the conceptual and the logical, and then you put it into action, the physical, because we don't film dialogue, we don't film pictures, we film action. So, and whether that be the action of turning on the camera, or that, that be the action of keeping the camera dark and only uh, having music in the background, it, it could be any one of these, but something will happen through the light and touch the audience. And so, for example, story. We have um, Hero of a Thousand Faces when we have Dan Harmon's um, minimized version of the story circle. So what we liked to do with the machine for rats is create a pyramidal uh, story structure, a pyramid instead, and base this pyramid off of where the characters begin at the foundation. Uh, they're spread apart, and as they go up the pyramid, the story pyramid, they reach its ultimate climax. So different things like this, taking these ranges of films and manipulating those ranges to create a new type of work, I think it's about what you put into it. Um, and we've touched on the dance, cinematography. Uh, if I have a handheld camera, you know, I don't have to necessarily look through the lens. I can sweep my hand across a plane to kind of pan over or have this push-pull. I can climb a tree and hang off of it upside down and shoot. You know, you have all these different uh, ways of thinking because you have stripped away the uh, the different tools such as tripods or such as, you know, um, dollies or anything like that. And it boiled it down into these fundamental parts, these fundamental truths that then guide your film um, and the way, the process in which you make it. So I believe that while we have these seven ranges as kind of a foundation, we then have to take it apart and boil it down and use reductionism. I like to think of science a lot when making films. Uh, science uh, can be broken down into three different categories. You have reductionism, which is the objective. You have theory, the objective subjective. And you have art, which is the subjective. So you have the um, not only the subjective art to play with, but you have these different methods of thinking about the film, um, reduct reducing things down into their component parts, and theoretically, what would I have? What would happen if I did this, or what would happen if I did that? Um, the choices that you make during the shoot and during the pre-production stage and the post-production stage are all going to redefine and refine what you were trying to convey to the audience through the light. Um, 
And so we have uh, in horror, for example, you know, we think about uh, we have this circle that everything starts at the demurge, which is the idea. And from that demurge comes two parallel points on a spectrum. We have comedy on one end and tragedy on the other. And horror stems from the tragedy end of that spectrum. When we reduce it further, fear can be broken up into three different categories. You have gore, which is the putrid, the festering, the gross, and the bloody. You have horror, which is the monster that grabs you underneath the bed, giant spiders or like aliens or whatever. You and you have terror, which is waking up in the middle of the night to find that your entire bedroom has been replaced with an exact copy of itself. And from those reduced uh, pieces to that puzzle, we can then start thinking about what are the goals of this film? Because if we've defined it as terror, then we can uh, try to create something, an image that is going to stay and is going to stick in the mind of the audience. So when they fall asleep at night, they'll still be thinking about the film and what they've just witnessed. If we're making a horror, we want to universally align the audience into a fear spectrum category. So if we're showing a monster underneath the bed, we would like universally for the audience to look at that monster and feel fear. The whole entire goal of that specific film. And the goal of gore, of course, is to universally trigger the acid reflux. So to get that physical feeling. Um, because if we touch the audience through the light in filmmaking, then a physical reaction will be elicited. You know, they can cry, they can laugh. There's a whole entire world of filmmaking and what we can do with light. And so when you're going through an art gallery, for example, and you find a painting and you stare at it for hours because you're going through something, that's the artist speaking to them. If you're listening to music through your headphones and it's sad and somber because you've gone through a depressing breakup or something like that or something incredibly tragic, then that's the musician. But in film, because we're filming light on the celluloid, the entire purpose is to touch the audience with that light. Yeah, that's a, a great analysis. So a question for you is when you come up with a, an idea for a film, let's say for the film that you entered in the Experimental Film Fest, A Message for Help. When you came up with that idea and it was evolving on paper or however your creative process works, did you consider all these psychological aspects? I mean, when you when you created the, the film and the, the look and the, you know, the feel of it and the characters and so on, did you, did you do this heavy psychological analysis? I mean, it sounds like you go deeper than just filming a story. It sounds like that you, you place elements of, you know, scientific elements in your filmmaking and your, you know, you, you think about the psychology and, and what you're doing to the audience. It, instead of just telling a story, you're actually, you're actually building something that really focuses more on the audience than I've ever heard most filmmakers do. Is that accurate or am I totally off base? Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. And definitely, I think that when, for a message for help, for example, when you're watching a message for help and let's think about when you're on your phone and this film, for example, is speaking to audiences that find themselves alone and to receive a message on your phone that is very vague and it says, come quick. If the only information that you're getting is come quick, you don't know what is going to be on the other side of that message. It may not be a message for help in the very beginning stages of anal you know, analyzing what's being told to you. So what I was attempting to do with that is to give the feeling of, okay, I wonder what exactly is going on with this specific message. Because we can come out and say, oh, it's a horror film, or we can come out and say, oh, it's a tragedy. Uh, but if we keep that vagueness alive for the brief moments until you realize exactly what's going on, you can 
almost feel the safety uh, fleeing from you as the different emotions are expressed on the screen and you see the climax of the film and we can really hit the gas. Uh, some films tend to be a little slower and I feel that that slowness is the meditative part of the film when we watch it. When we're trying to uncover the mystery or understand exactly what we're witnessing. So we had, for example, a message for help is around two minutes long. So we had kind of, it, we were playing with time a little bit as far as not revealing too much of where this individual was when he received that text on his phone um, and enough time to be able to follow him into this space by using techniques such as infrasound or by using techniques such as um, wobble in the edit and then stabilizing the camera, we can start sh shape-shifting this world that he's walking into that's about to be turned upside down. Um, so most of your films have been shorts and you just are finishing up uh, a feature-length film. Uh, what's the name of the feature-length film you're doing? A Machine for Rats. A Machine for Rats, yes, sorry. So, um, since you came from filming shorts, what did you learn in making a feature-length film? Something that I've learned while making the feature-length film, A Machine for Rats, I've learned that being afraid of making a feature film isn't... If, if you, you, in your heart, want to make a feature-length film, I definitely think you should. I don't think that you should focus too much on time or, you know, will this clip run long enough or will this clip be short enough for this thing? I, to give film like a life of its own, we can, we call it a feature film, but in reality, it's just a film like any other film. Um, the fear and the anxiety of putting together this piece, as long as you have minimized um, all of your distractions and keep your focus, I think that making a feature film with incredibly limited resources and having a strong base of communication and being able to work with good people that are exceptional artists and taking a lot on yourself, not blaming anybody else but yourself, you can make a feature film. You can make any sort of film that you desire. And I think that I've learned that objectively I've always kind of thought about it in the back of my mind, but objectively for me, I've learned that just by the act of doing. You're listening to the Experimental Film Podcast with Ken Hess. And now, back to the show. Very cool. Yeah, I like that. Because, you know, a lot of people like myself, we kind of thrive on shorts. In fact, to me... Uh, even if I get up to something like 18 minutes, I'm thinking, okay, where can I cut something out? Because this is so tedious. But I kind of have, I don't know whether it's ADD or just a, a, too much irritability to sit <laughs> and watch one that long. I think I can. I mean, I watch feature-length films all the time with my wife and family. But uh, I don't know. It's just a, a different feel sometimes with a, a short versus a, a feature-length film. Um, Definitely. I don't know if I don't know if I could do it because, you know, a scene, you know, a, a scene in a movie is anywhere from what a couple of seconds to maybe eight or 10 seconds long until you need to switch the camera, which, you know, that's technical stuff. That's not, you know, emotional or I guess it can be related to emotional. But I don't know, just the daunting task of making a feature length film, you know, having people dedicated enough to hang with you long enough to make that. It just seems like a, a daunting task. And it's it's, you know, it's major, especially like you say, if you do it with limited resources. And um, I mean, that's to me, that's that really says a lot about a person who is able to actually pull that off. <laughs> so congratulations. I'm, I'm happy for you when, to make a feature length film. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. So is it a, also a horror film? Uh, it is a psychological thriller. Cool. It, it, so yeah, it, it definitely has some scary moments um, that 
I think will really stimulate the audience. And I hope that we can reach out and touch them uh, through the light, give them the catharsis to wake up the next morning and know that everything's going to be all right. Yeah. So since you're in Dallas, do you get involved in any of that um, avant-garde stuff down in the Deep Ellum area? Do you get to show your films down there? I know there's a couple of or there used to be, I don't know anymore, but there used to be at least one or two places that would show art house type films. Interesting. Um, I haven't had the opportunity yet. Uh, I know that Deep Ellum is an incredibly hopping place. Um, a lot of what we're basing our uh, kind of distribution platform on is social media and reaching out to people through that. Um, but we are looking into um, festivals, we're looking into screenings and understanding the mechanics by which we can come up with a logical plan on how to show these films and get people more and more interested in experimental films and uh, art in general. Yeah, you know, I've always wanted to live in a kind of an artsy place, and I guess I never have really, um, or at least I was there at the wrong time, maybe. But it seems like Deep Ellum would be a really cool place to just go show a film on the side of a building somewhere down there. You know, just whoever's walking by comes up and starts watching your films, you know, and you show a series of, say, four or five shorts or something in an evening. Definitely. I think that would be cool. Somewhere down, you know, near Twisted Root Hamburgers, if that still exists. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, oh, man. Uh, Twisted Root. Wow. And then, yeah, then they still have all their experimental uh, root beers and things like that. Oh, man. Yeah, that's a very cool area. I really like Deep Ellum in that area. Of course, I don't know where the the art center is now in Dallas. It used to be in uh, down around um, near downtown. I can't remember the name of the area now. I, I, I can see it in my head, but I, I can't. It was it called Oak, Oak Lawn. That was it. Um, yeah. That was a real artsy area several years ago and then it kind of transitioned over to deep Ellum. I don't, I don't know where it is now but wherever that is you should do this gorilla film showing thing you know, i think people would love that there you know you just yeah. you put up a screen or show it on the side of a building that's maybe painted white or something and uh-huh. you, you know just show your films get you a projector throw it up on the side of a building and that's an awesome idea. Yeah. Kind of like a graffiti sort of, uh, art. Exactly. Yeah. Just electronic graffiti. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, I think, I think people would be really into that. I've always wanted to do that. I've always wanted to get, um, speakers and one of those hundred, hundred inch or 120 inch screens, put it up, just show my films in a parking lot and have people come up, you know, and see them. There was a friend of mine who did, a concert one night at a bar and I went and filmed him and it was like three hours worth. And I thought, man, I want to take that and just put it up on the side of a building with some speakers and let people watch that. Like it's a, like it's a live event because what's really cool in that video I did for him is it, it starts out light, you know, in the background, you can see it getting darker and darker and darker outside. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. So, you know, I, I love, uh, those uh, kind of time shift backgrounds where it's not not so much um, a sped up time or, uh, you know, uh, what do they call that? But when like a cloud or something wafts over and oh, time you lapse. Know, uh, yeah. So instead of a time lapse, but just kind of like the light itself, like changing. I, I love shots like that, I, um, like in real time. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yep. And well, it, but that's what I would do. And in fact, if there was a place around here to do that, I, I might do the same thing. Is you know, just uh, just have like a a guerrilla film night. You know, where you just announce it on social media. You know, maybe a couple hours ahead of time or whatever, and you know, bring people to a parking lot or whatever and show show films. And it, they don't even have to be years. They can just be weird experimental films from, you know, off of uh, archive.org or something that you get. Just something fun to do, something avant-garde, uh, gorilla, crazy, you know, artsy. And, I, I mean, I would love to see that all over the country. I don't know that anybody's doing that. Um, you know, I've seen it sort of in an organized way where people will show 
they'll project stuff up on a building or something, but it's, you know, it's part of a kind of a performance art or art installation or whatever. And, right. you know, that's not even what I mean. I mean, just show films exactly kind of yeah. randomly, you know, definitely, you know, absolutely. And it's kind of like a, when, when, like when we were talking about tools earlier, for example, the projector itself is probably one of the most important tools and it's being used less and less and less. But if, if the entire point is to reach out to the audience through the light, it, it only makes sense to utilize that light in whatever way, shape or form possible. I think that's an excellent idea. Yeah, 100%. You know, yeah. You know, in the old days uh, of silent films, when they used the crank cameras, they also had uh, projectionists and projectionists used to make, pretty decent money because they were almost as important as the filmmakers themselves because they could control the speed and people always talk about oh old films you know they walk so fast and so that wasn't the original film in the film they walked normal it was the projectionist who sped the film up you yeah. know so i don't think a lot of people know that but it was the projectionist who would speed it up you know crank it faster and make them walk faster or whatever and, um, you know, it was funny to the audience and they, it was kind of an interactive thing because if you go the next night, it, it might be different because he wouldn't speed up in the same place or not as fast or something. So it was a real experiential thing. And I think that, um, you know, if you do something like that or this, you know, just showing films kind of randomly, I, I think that'd be a heck of a lot of fun. And if you do it, I want to know about it and how it goes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'll let you'll be the first. You'll be one of the first. Great. So uh, the message for help, it feels like now it might not be, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to mess with you here about it, but a message for help feels like a part of a larger project. Is it, or is it just a standalone idea that you had? It's completely standalone. And uh, what's interesting is a lot of people have told me that about, uh, my shorter films because uh, I keep everything very open and very vague because because it can be expanded on. But when I'm showing a short experimental film, uh, it's important to kind of remember that in moments of time when you're when you're watching something, uh, usually there's this sort of beginning, middle, and end, uh, but to give out a beginning or to give out an end and it it, it kind of it kind of gives away uh what am i trying to say it, tr it if we don't so a, mis a message for help is definitely just like a middle there's no beginning or end because it gives away a very specific feeling of terror or what ha what had happened to this person why is he here it's not it's not kind of the point of the short the point is to be able to take what you felt in this experience with you outside of the film and to understand where you were before the film started so when i show these short experimental films that's definitely what i'm after i cut out a lot of the beginning i cut out a lot of the end there's not very much mise la scene um, it's very abrupt and it's something that you can witness. And when you are able to witness something instead of to watch and follow it, uh, you've laid witness to a tragedy. You've laid witness to a horror. And so before that, were you fine? Um, and after that, are you fine? You, you can look back into yourself and think, okay, now that I've witnessed this, where am I and where was I? Yeah, I like that. Is that kind of I kind of like the the idea of starting in the middle of things. They call that uh, in medias race in Latin. It means in the middle of things where you kind of start, like you said, you don't have a beginning or an end. You have, you just have the moment. And yeah. I think that's really cool. It's a very cool concept because, you know, like other people have observed, it, it kind of leaves us wanting more, which is good because that's what you want. You want your audience to want more. So, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't feel incomplete. That's not what I'm saying, but it just feels like, you know, you know, and you're kind of, I guess, promoting people to kind of finish the story themselves. Like some movies will end and you go, well, I wonder what happened to so-and-so, 
you know, mm-hmm. you want to know what happens, you know, 30 seconds from the end of that film. Because <laughs> it probably is not going to be good. <laughs> no, <laughs> probably not. Uh, and then, you know, what, what, what's interesting about um, watching things just in the middle, uh, being in the middle of the experience is also when there's a collective dreaming going on. When we start from the beginning of something, everybody's mind is racing ahead to think, I bet this happens next, or, oh man, maybe this will happen next. Uh, But if you start in the middle, like with a message for help, we can say that the ending may not be good, but for someone who witnesses a film and has more of an action mind, maybe it becomes a completely different film in their imagination. You know, it's like, I, I love to read. Um, I, I love the daydreaming and uh, being able to picture everything going in my head um, while I'm reading the book, whether it be an ergodic literature book um, or, uh, you know, something that, that will enlighten my imagination. And I definitely want to give that feeling to the audience when they watch my film because the collective dream when you wake up out of the dream and you think, okay, what would happen if this happened or this happened? You know, it becomes subjective to the audience and what they've experienced after they've witnessed the film. So it could be an action. It could be a horror. You know, genre is very, uh, you know, fluid. Yeah, that's true. So who are your, uh, who are the filmmakers that you use for inspiration or who have inspired you? I think person is Werner Herzog. Um, I think that he has been beyond inspirational uh, watching the way uh, he created his films and in the time that he created his films because the German New Wave uh, is it's, you know, during the uh, Nazi regime taking over, they burned a lot of the art and a lot of the film and replaced that with propaganda. And so when we have the German new wave, we had an entire sort of country trying to recreate their own filmic language uh, that was lost to them. And Herzog, being a part of that era, uh, definitely thought very differently than um, like Rainer Werner Fassbender, who came from theater. Uh, And because of his kind of guerrilla approach to filmmaking, um, his drive to create films at all costs. I think that really inspired me and it inspired me to think, okay, well, if all I need is a camera and maybe some audio equipment, I could make a film. I don't have to worry about, you know, paying millions of dollars. I don't have to worry about investors. I just work myself like he did in this. He he worked in a steel mill factory uh, to pay for his first feature film. And uh, I, you know, Blackwell Film Company, in themselves you know we have a few other people that are with us um and they work day jobs just like me but anybody can make a film and i think Werner herzog had really like inspired that in me and in a place in my life where i i felt i really needed it so i think he'd be at the top of my list for sure yeah so you're not going to believe this but in 30 or 40 interviews that I've done on this podcast, I think I can't, I can't recall for sure, but I'm, I'm pretty sure because it's what I told the person I interviewed just before you uh, on episode 12. She said Werner Herzog was her big inspiration. And I think (laughs) it's funny (laughs) to hear that twice in a row like that. It's, it's, it's pretty funny because I had just told her, I said, I don't think anybody else has said that. And then, then you said Werner Herzog. That's uh, oh, wow. that's pretty funny. And as I told her, he's kind of um, one of those guys who you know has his own. Of course, everybody does has their own style and and so on. But uh, you know his documentaries are are pretty interesting, and I I like him a lot. But um, you know most people stick with uh, people more mainstream, like um, like David Lynch or uh, the Coen Brothers or. Tarantino or somebody like that. It, it's kind of funny that I've had two people in a row tell me Werner Herzog. So I'm, I'm going to have to go back and rewatch some Werner Herzog stuff. 
I don't know if he's on the Criterion channel, but I'm going to I'm going to hit the Criterion channel tonight and and see if I can find something. <laughs> yeah. He's uh he's got the he, he's unfortunately not able to get on Criterion. He's with the his films are with the British Film Institute. Ah. Film uh, streaming. Yeah. That's on a I think Amazon Prime. Oh, okay. Well, I watch him there then. Um <laughs> are you currently involved with any film groups or meetups or other film related activities? Um, I'm really not, uh, I'm really a lone shark down here with, with, uh, the friends that I've gathered that love acting and love art and music. And, uh, our team, uh, is pretty alone. We've got a few, um, a few of our members are really, uh, interested in that sort of scene, but I'm, I'm very, uh, sort of introverted <laughs> kind of live in an apartment with my wife we're just making our way through the through the world right now and kind of focused on that but film being such a uh, part of my life uh, I can't help but make them you know despite uh, not having a really broad network or uh, being out and about constantly uh, you know I, I make films because I need to yeah, I understand that. That's the same with, well, same filmmaking uh, with me and, and writing and, and so on. And anybody who is truly creative, it's it's not a thing that you necessarily, I mean, you do want to, but I, I'm saying it's more of a need than a want. I think people don't understand yeah. that who aren't creative. It's, right. it's you have to do it. It's it's weird. And no one understands it except other creative people. It's not that you, you know, um, you know, a painter doesn't paint because they love the smell of linseed oil. It's that they have to get this from their head onto a canvas or onto a wall or something. And that's why, yeah, yeah. I think that's why that if you want to, you know, become known in the film industry and so on, do something, put yourself out there, do this guerrilla uh, film projection thing, you know, um, let people see you with the camera, you know, let, you know, go down to Deep Ellum with cameras and, you know, just shoot something random. It can be experimental. Just have somebody just run down the street towards you or, or something, you know, just just put scenes together and, you know, just have people. I, I think that's the way you get known in a bigger city like that as, as a filmmaker, especially a, a, a guerrilla or an avant-garde or a horror filmmaker, is you they, they need to see you. They need to see the process. Because people are so curious about filmmaking and filmmakers, uh, it's like writing. If there's one thing that everybody, you know, I would say 95% of the people you ask, they want to write, but they don't. Because like like 0.3% of the population or 0.1% of the population actually writes, but 95% of the people want to. I think there's a lot of people who are curious about film, curious about filmmakers, curious about the process. And I think they would love to see it. I think, I think it's time. I think it's the right time and you're in the right place to do something like this. And that's, you know, that's the way you get known for, for something like that. So, you know, go forth and, and be a gorilla. A G U E R I L L A, not the uh, G O R I L L A. So, um, what are you working on right now? If you can tell us, um, right now, uh, interestingly enough, uh, we're on our third feature film. So we've we've made two. Um, when I when I wanted to uh, promote a machine for rats, it's because our post production stages are incredibly long. Um, we finished, uh, tears in absentia a while back, um, which is a psychedelic, uh, tragedy. And, uh, now we're working on a song of hunger, which is a Western horror, uh, sort of art house film. And we're going, we're about to, at the end of August, go out to the mountains in Colorado. And, uh, these feature films have been filmed probably about, I'd, I'd say about four months apart. And we're trying to kind of narrow that gap as we get better and better at post-production to about a feature film a month is our goal right now. Wow. That's crazy talk. 
<laughs> but you know what I think would be really cool, uh, especially if you're into the art house avant-garde thing, is go to where avant-garde people hang out, artists, um, you know, filmmakers, other things like that in Dallas, and you know, get involved with your camera, take your camera with you, film these people in action. Um, I I think you'll really be onto something there if you do that. I think you'll be. Um, you know, you'll become known as that guy. That's what Bruce Connor used to do. That's what, uh, you know, Andy Warhol and some of the other filmmakers in New York, that's what they used to do. They used to just go hang around other people like themselves in an artsy area with other artists and filmmakers and writers. And that's, they, those filmmakers chronicled an entire generation of artists and filmmakers and writers. I mean that you wouldn't have otherwise, if nobody yeah. was there with a camera, we wouldn't have that whole feel of the Bowery in New York. You wouldn't have that whole hate Ashbury area in San Francisco. And I know there's areas like that in the, in the Dallas area. And man, it would be so cool just to go jump in the middle of it with a camera and just see what happens. I mean, that's, I mean, these days you don't have film to mess with, you know, you can just take your digital video camera, you know, a DSLR or whatever you shoot with. I don't know what you use, but man, I would just take multiple SD cards with me and just let it happen. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think (laughs) (laughs) definitely. I mean, it's not horror or tragedy, but it is art house. I think I, like, I think a lot of people would love to see that kind of stuff, especially if it was an artistic black and white. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So here I, I am like telling a, you telling you how to make art. your film career. But seriously, I think it'd be I think you're the right person for it. And I think it's the right place to do it. And uh, it would be very hip and cool. I'd love to see some of what happens out of it. Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I really appreciate uh, the lessons I've learned uh from this from this conversation i'm taking notes voraciously that's why i'm not talking back (laughs) yeah no i am too i'm i've learned a lot from you in uh, you know the psychological analysis and i've noticed this a lot about and i and i hate to generalize in any sort of way but i have noticed this about younger filmmakers and i've actually mentioned it on the podcast before younger filmmakers these days really really analyze what they do. They're meticulous. They're detail-oriented. They're um, very interested in the psychology behind whatever they're showing on film. It's not accidental. It's not incidental. And it's just, it's so interesting to me that you guys take such care. And, you know, it's not like uh, some of the guys in the 60s or 70s who just kind of randomly did stuff and put together. I mean, they that has its place and it's, it's cool. You know, organic filmmaking is cool, but man, the, the crazy deep psychological stuff that you guys think about is just, it's amazing to me. And and to me that really elevates your films and I'm, I really like it and I'm, I'm so glad it's happening. I'm glad there's this resurgence of real thought behind films, you know, rather than just entertainment, you're really trying to build a, build a whole psychological world, I guess you would say. And I'm, I really like that. Absolutely. And I, I appreciate that. I, I definitely feel like it's, it's that time to let film breathe again. And, uh, I think that, uh, not, not just generationally, but just everyone in general who's interested in making films, uh, a kid, uh, that's eight years old that picks up a camera for the first time or something, uh, you know, someone who's just now getting into film because he couldn't, because he had had a bad life and uh, never got the opportunity, but finally got the opportunity to make a film. It, anyone can make a film these days. And if they put the passion and the research behind it, we're going to, all of us together, as, a, a, as hum, a humanity uh, is going to find a resurgence in film and i th- i think that it's time to let it breathe we need to allow the light to reach out to the audience once again i think you're right I, that's a very poetic and 
beautiful way of putting it. I really like that. I might even steal it. <laughs> but um, before we sign off here, please tell us how to engage with your work, like your website or uh, any other ways that the audience can, can check you out. Absolutely. Um, Blackwellfilmcompany.com is our website. From there, you can engage in all of our social media platforms. You can speak with me. I'm really open to speaking with people. We can talk about whatever. Um, if you're having any, uh, if you have any ideas that you'd like to uh, speak with me about or disagree on something, and we can have an intellectual debate. Um, or just, you know, whatever you feel you need to reach out, please do. And, uh, blackwellfilmcompany.com. And that'll take us, take you to all of our social media platforms. Very cool. Thanks, Zach. I really appreciate you coming on today and, uh, be sure and check out Zach's films. Uh, I haven't seen the feature length one yet, but I'm thinking from the shorts I've seen, it should be really, really good. So I'm excited about that and I can't wait to be able to see uh, all three of the ones that you're working on now well i appreciate that thank you so much for having me on no problem and thank you for joining us for this 13th episode of season two of the experimental film podcast our guest today was writer director and producer zach blackwell please contact me if you'd like to schedule an interview sponsor the podcast or point me to some cool experimental films and we'll see you next time if you would like to sponsor a podcast or schedule an interview, send an email to ken at experimentalfilm.info. Thanks for listening to the Experimental Film Podcast with Ken Hess.